Okay, so I know I don't look as beautiful with the nice flowing hair as Ella does, but I, my name is Brad Slaughter, a little bit of background about me. Um, I am one of the co-owners uh, and the CEO of CBD Spa. We're a supply, retail, wholesale, beauty, and spa line, uh, which we will also have a spa in Sarasota, Florida uh, by the start of Q3. Uh, we focus on topical applications, since obviously tinctures and uh, edible products are not legal right now. Um, for those of you who don't know, surprise. <laughs> it's, uh, it's illegal right now through the FDA. But, um, but yeah, so the panel that we're discussing is biotechnology and manufacturing and production of CBD. So quick abstract and then we'll go to the panelists to introduce themselves. So one of the greatest results of cannabis legalization has been the implementation of current methods and technology from the scientific sector into the cannabis industry. That technology and human talent has driven great strides in the cannabinoid production. One has been the incorporation of CBD into a water-soluble format, which allows greater integration into food and beverages. Another has been the promising application in the incorporation of microbial cannabinoid expression vectors into the repertoire of CBD manufacturing processes. The challenge with the last method includes specific enzymes necessary to synthesize the highly hydrophobic cannabinoid molecules, but these issues are currently being overcome. So there's a lot in there, and it's a mouthful. And we'll definitely go into that. So let's start with Jake. Yeah, so I'm Jake Black, uh, Chief Scientific Officer at Treehouse Biotech. So I'm not on the list of panels, but uh, over the past uh, four years, I've worked in the, the hemp industry, and we have both an R&D branch developing, um, isolating, developing new cannabinoid products, as well as you know, full-scale production of hemp-derived uh, CBD and other products like that. So I think I have something to contribute, hopefully. Maybe a little bit. Uh, Dan? Uh, my name is Dan Gustvik. I'm the founder of Hybrid Tech. We're an engineering group uh, currently headquartered in Portland, Oregon. We have about 37 states covered in a couple countries. Uh, we've got about 150 projects in the cannabis and hemp sector. Uh, recently, also, we're launching the um, GeoCourse, which is basically a brand we have where we can sell some of our clients hemp seeds and distill it and isolate. And since we know so many people, it seems like that was a great idea. <laughs> John. My name's John Kay. <clears throat> Uh, founder and CEO of my own company called Synergistic Technologies Associates, which is a mouthful, and also Chief Technology Officer for a company called um, New Bridge Global Ventures, which is another mouthful. And on that side, being able to do five different types of extraction and making different uh, products for the hemp and uh, cannabis industry. Awesome. So, as with this abstract, like John was saying, it's a mouthful. And we're going to break it down into three different aspects. So let's start with the water-soluble formats of CBD, Jake and John. I'll throw, so the molecule CBD by itself in, in its pure form are really all hemp extracts and oils are all what uh, chemists call hydrophobic. So if you can think of it like uh, olive oil in water, right? It sits as a pool on the top. They do not mix. You can shake it up as much as you want. They always separate into separate layers. So that's a good way to think of uh, hemp extracts, cannabis oils, and CBD in particular. So recently there's been a development of um, what are called surfactants. Uh, they're molecules, if you think of them like soap essentially, they can form little bubbles around the hydrophobic portions of it. So CBD can get entrapped in these bubbles and then you can get stable formations of essentially water soluble CBD. So that's a rough description for, for now. Mm -hmm. And John? So when, when you're looking at, as we were saying before, it's, um, they're not soluble or they have very trace amounts of solubility in each other because it's like waxing your car. So if you put a layer of wax on your car and then you have water on top, then it beads up. And that's gonna be the same thing that happens with your oil and vinegar. And if you shake the oil and vinegar really vigorously and then slop it onto your salad as fast as you can, when it actually gets onto your salad, it's actually going to separate again, right? But you wanna eat your salad as fast as you can also. Those all become time. So what's happening in, in this world is people are making what they call water soluble, which um, there's a couple good words for that. One is not really, <laughs> and the other one is bullshit. <laughs> Can I say that? Too late. So it's, it can't, it's, it's small emulsifications. So what happens when you're starting to do ultrasound and you're starting to use surfactants, what you're doing is you're, is you're taking this molecule that has a 
call it a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic end. So the hydrophobic end is, is pointed towards the, the nice um, uh, cannabinoid. And then the hydrophilic end is out towards the side where it's toward the polar. So the, the more you make these, the more that's, that's how you have most of your emulsified salad dressings and such, because there's other salad dressings that are together, right? We all have some of those. We have things that are in a creamy fashion. So when you have creamy Italian, it's another way of saying, I'm keeping these things together so that when they're on the salad, I can taste them at the same time. But it's creamy. That's nice. And so when you're doing the same thing with these, is is that when you're using ultrasound and cavitation, you're also making these molecules smaller and smaller and getting them closer and closer together. So now they're, they call it nano, <clears throat> which again is incredulous, um, but at the same time another word would be probably not right. And so you're making them smaller and smaller so that now you have these itty bitty oil and vinegar droplets, but they're so small that they can't seed each other so they look like they're water soluble, but they're actually emulsifications. They're very small emulsifications. So when we're talking about water soluble, it's it's not accurate. It's not accurate. It's emulsions, but those things are still available. Your your challenge comes when you start to move towards these is making sure that the rest of the components in that mixture are not doing bad things to your emulsifiers. So acid is not a good thing. It breaks down the cannabinoids really quickly. And so you're also trying to keep those and trying not to have it do de-emulsification. Your, your next challenge is, of course, is when you make these little tiny things, how do you analyze them? And so you have to be able to have liquid chromatography or high-pressure liquid chromatography to be able to, to take these same small microemulsions to be able to separate them so that you can actually quantitate, qualitate, which means you know what it is, quantitate to know how much it is into those. And so that's the, uh, that's the challenge, but that's also where you're moving towards water-soluble. And then I'd like to add to, which I think has been a big problem recently, is you get you know this water emulsion, this water-soluble formula, and once you put it in a plastic water bottle, they've found that it just, like, the CBD would rather stick to plastic, the hydrophobic portion, and so you're coating the inside of your water bottle with CBD, great, but then when you actually drink the water, are you actually getting any of that CBD in itself? And so that's been a big issue too of making sure that the product you buy, that they put the CBD in there, sure, but is it actually going into your body? That, that's another big challenge that needs to be addressed. Now it's tag team, you're in deep trouble now. And so <laughs> what, what happens on that is, is that when it says shake, any, any product you see, your, your pharmaceuticals, if it says shake it, shake it. I, I, it sounds silly, but that's what you're trying to get it off the side of the bottle, hoping it will go back through, and you're and you're getting that. That's the same reason why they, the doctors take the little thing and they put it on the little little tiny uh, paper sh uh, uh, paint shaker, which little tiny. That's why they do that. And so you want to shake it to get it off, so it's it's back into a solution. And so what I do. If you're looking at products that you're trying to get, as I put it into a glass beaker or something like that, I'll take it out of the dark bottle, pour it into something that's visible, and I'll wait a day to see, did it separate? And so if you're buying a product from someone else and you're, willing to, and you're wanting to redistribute it, make sure that it says, and it, and it does separate, then make sure you say shake well on your product so that they know that. Because I've, I've tested enough products that the next day, I'll test the first time and I'll get a you know, fairly accurate reading. The next day, I'll find 84% CBD up in the top layer. Well, if someone doesn't shake it, they're either going to get zero, they're going to have the sesame seed oil and the coconut oil, which is going to taste really bad, and, and the next person towards the end is going to get 84% CBD. Not a good choice. Absolutely. So I, I think that covers uh, the water solubility pretty well. <laughs> Was there any questions? Did you have a question, ma'am? So twain or tween, something like that. So they're mostly a hydrophobic type of surfactant you typically find in the food industry or in the emulsification industry. Yeah, and, and tween is not ionic. So yeah. like polyethylene glycol. It, yeah, so yeah. it's a bunch of ethers going along the line. So I don't know technical classification, but I know it's not anionic or cationic. Right. Yep, at least. So yep. if you look at sono mechanics, for example, uh, not, no, 
just he he's done a, a lot of work with that with different ones that go into there so I would look at those patents and I would look you know for patents for salad dressing and other things like that and then see what they're using and it's probably very similar did you have a question Adam oh yes um, so the more or less more water soluble form is that what does that do for the bioavailability does it make it more bioavailable or is it just to add to liquids so bioavailability comes from the other parts of where it can transport to your body. So bioavailability versus bioactivity are two different, very, very different principles. So bioavailability is how do I get it to where I want it to be, and the bioactivity is how do I have it. So if it's CBD all by itself, and uh, then you don't have the entourage effect. You need the other things that are also going to be able to contribute to that bioactivity, not just bioavailability. So you can make something so small that it passes through the cell. You can make a nano, so you can look up in the pharmaceutical when they make the nano and micro motions, you can have it so, so small that you walk through a room. The molecule doesn't care about us. It's just gonna walk straight through a cell out the other side. So you wanna have it small enough to be able to enter a cell and then not come back out. At the same time, it, it's gotta be small enough to get into the cell, but not too small that it just exits out the other side. So it's, it's different, has, it's, it's the entourage effect that gives you the bioactivity, bioavailability, not just the size of CBD in an emulsion. If anyone, you wanna, anyone wanna add? I think that's good. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes sir. So everybody in the room is gonna wanna try to sell me something after they hear this story. Um, I, uh, I, I recently sent away, I, I don't even know if this is possible, maybe you guys can tell me if this is possible. I recently sent away some isolate out of this town to make it converted into, a company was going to convert it into water-soluble paste, some into paste, and some into powder, and it sounded really good for manufacturing drinks and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So I would say if it's isolate, right, pure CBD, 99, 98%, yeah. whatever. If it's pure CBD, it cannot be water-soluble without an additive. It can be a powdered additive. It could be a paste-like additive. It could be an oil-like additive. So it's possible they just take your isolate, they add the surfactant to it, and now say we made it water soluble, but they've added something to it. Well, I, under, I understand. So what they turned it into was uh, it, my fantastic isolate. <laughs> they turned it into five liters of this paste that's th supposedly 13.5%, uh, you know, and then they said the powder's on its way, it's gonna be like 16 and change or whatever. And that's all fine and dandy, but there was no mixing instructions, no paperwork, no COA, nothing like that with it. So I said, well, look, I got to send this away to have it tested because it's going in, into a drink, you know? So I have to have, I got to make sure. And they said, they told me that there's, their encapsulation formula is proprietary and only a couple of labs in the country can test for their, you know, how they've done it or whatever. They I think you have seven hands that want to sell you something. Four more hands went up. I know some great uh, protein shakes you can probably put it in. It tastes just as bad. Closest you get is a tax code. <laughs> so you can, no, you can test that product. I, I, I would be surprised that you can't break it apart and then test it by HPLC. I mean, if, yeah, it's, it it's liquid HPLC. chromatography or supercritical fluid chromatography, one of those two. Thank you. Okay. And a tandem quad. <laughs> So we can, we can answer more questions afterwards. I want to I want to move into another aspect of it because um, we're going to have another long conversation about this. So um, specific enzymes necessary to synthesize these hydro, highly hydrophobic cannabinoid molecules. So um, I know you were sharing with the former moderator about yeast on the Nature magazine and creating uh, cannabinoids through yeast. There's also ways that you can create cannabinoids through willow bark. Um, let's let's talk about this for a second. Um, what's the actual efficacy of it? What you know, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So I, just to briefly outline what is going on biochemically is they can take so in, in the cannabis plant there are specific genes that code for the, the enzymes that make cannabinoids and there's a biosynthetic pathway. It takes A, adds it to B, 
adds it to C, you get THC, or you know, A, B, C, you get CBD. So that's how the plant is making it. So with biotechnology now, you can just cut those genes out of cannabis, put them into yeast, and then you can put your yeast in a reactor, give them sugar, and then they do the same thing, A, B, and C. So it's, it's feasible, there's been papers showing that it, it works, it's possible to do, that the questions then become, you know, if the plant already grows it at, say, 20%, why spend so much effort and time to get yeast to do it for you? That's one question. Um, it, when can ye, Will yeast peak at a certain like level, right? So if they're making it, say, at 0.1% or 1%, if you get to 5%, does it start interfering with the yeast's life cycle? Does it, are these molecules are very hydrophobic, as we just spent a lot of time discussing, do, and you're doing these in giant water reactors, is that gonna cause problems? So it's very interesting, I think, scientifically, and a very cool demonstration, and though um, it's, you know, other molecules have been done this way in the past, but the practicality, I think, remains to be seen. Johnny, have anything to add on that? So it's called biopharma. And so biopharma is what we've been doing for, you know, a couple, 30 years and stuff like that. So when you're making some of these high-end um, medical formulations that have a lot of complexity in, into them, that's, that's what they do. They have these big yeast reactors, and then they feed them amino acids, and they monitor the amino acids. When they're hungry, they feed them. And so we know what to put in there, whether it's uh, glycine or some other amino acid that they... No, they happen to like. So Albany Molecular Research, which isn't cleverly enough in Albany, New York, um, probably has, I'm going to say, 10 to 15 unique patents that other people do. So Albany Molecular Research is a, is a research place, but also does um, um, contract um, synthesis. And so there's, there's at least 15 companies that already have got Albany Molecular making these. I mean, you can look it up in the patents. It's very easy to find in the patents. And so from that, what you're able to do is, if I want to make something that's not, that the plant doesn't make in a large amount, but I still want, so I want, I want um, CBDV. Uh, the plant's not making a whole lot of that, but if I found something I wanted to have, then I could make that special. If I wanted something that was even more unique where I wanted to make sure there was another carboxylic acid group or a phosphate group to make it more bioavailable so the, bio, the body looks at it and says, oh, you're kind of nice. I like you better than CBDV. You seem more absorbable to me. And so that's where they would, that's where they would move the biopharma. It's the same thing that you're going to see when you add on other groups. And so it, it'll be something that's, that's a unique thing that someone's trying to make something with a specific therapeutic value it's going to be towards some special epilepsy. It's going to be some, some special cancer in the liver that needs to be delivered in this way. And that's how they'll, that's biopharma. Yeah. And I think, which is maybe, it's not, it doesn't have the word bio in front of it, so I think a lot of people will be more skeptical of it. Um, but there's also the traditional synthetic route to like say CBDV, plant doesn't make a lot of it, maybe the biopharma aspect of it is too expensive or for whatever reason, but from a synthetic chemistry standpoint, you can make that molecule in a couple steps and it's economically feasible. And I think it's specifically with cannabinoids, a, a unique situation where synthetic cannabinoids, you probably have read about in the news and K2 and spice, those are like completely different molecules, completely separate from the naturally occurring cannabinoids and they've been deemed synthetic cannabinoids. But a synthetically made version of the same naturally occurring cannabinoid. So you could make CBD in a lab and it is identical to CBD from a plant. So the word synthetic gets parsed there in two different ways. And so I think from a PR perspective, it's, it's gonna be hard to communicate to the public, but that's another route that people will probably be pursuing for these very um, rare cannabinoids that come from the plant. So when you're looking at some of the things for where we're heading towards the medical side is you have to follow that molecule through the metabolism. And so what you do is you put on something called a deuteriumide an ion instead of a hydrogen. So it's got a molecular weight of another one. So you can start to track it through or you can put tritium on, which is radioactive, and you can track it through the body to see where it's going. And so when you look at those synthetics, you can see them. They'll have a couple of initials like AM. AM is Alexandros Macrionis. 
he made Spice, he made the other ones, he made them so that they could put other groups on and make them more bioavailable, but also track them through the body. So those patents are all there. You can, all you have to do is, you know, read a book and, uh, and see AM or some of the other ones. You can see it in the synthetics, but, you, but those are the initials in front of it. So those are synthetically made in exact criteria. Remembering that the, one more, sorry. So the plant makes, out of the nine isomers of THCA, it makes one very specific. The hydrogens are in a certain way, and the chiral carbons and all the other things, that plant makes that because that's how it, it's, it's a template. When you're doing synthetic, you make all of them. And so that's the part that the plant does a phenomenal job in 13 weeks. Anybody have any questions on that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> CVD is non-chiral, so. So uh, we can and we can hop into some more questions after this. I want to get onto the last aspect of this um, this panel, and this is kind of uh, directing a little bit away from the actual scientific aspects of it, but more so for the actual manufacturing processes. And Dan can definitely hop on that. Now, one of my first questions for you, Dan. Um, and I know all three, all four of you guys, or three of you guys have been talking about this. Um, so coming to the extraction method itself and trying to scale. I know a lot of people with uh, this ever-growing hemp market are trying to scale this manufacturing process through either ethanol or CO2. What makes it economically feasible to make these uh, manufacturing processes scalable? Is it feasible? And what would be better, a CO2 or ethanol? <laughs> Okay, that's a lot. Um, so I, I guess the first part was uh, what is basically blocking things from scaling right now? In, in essence, when you have a large process, um, obviously going after a CO2 or ethanol, uh, either one, you're still going to have a problem with ramping this from the existing size it currently is. So a lot of people are starting with um, existing machines, existing processes that are actually pretty well defined and they have never been ramped yet to the scale we're talking about. So one of the biggest issues you have with scaling something, whether it be CO2 or ethanol, is as they're getting larger, you have a little bit more complex process, of course, involved. You have far more, um, well, you can get far more out of it, far more throughput by actually having more of a custom process, of course. And since there is no real flawless template, perfect CO2 at mass or ethanol at mass process currently, the big problem you have is you have these manufacturers who are more than willing to make um, stainless pressure vessels, which most of them do. They're making high quality stainless, normally 304 steel um, uh, piping and assemblies, and you are buying from normally a steel manufacturer who's good at making pressure vessels. They're not process train experts though. They are steel manufacturers, and the whole job is they're selling you these primary pressure vessels, you know, falling film units, all the different components, and these are large-scale components that you, of course, have to somehow put together. Very often, they don't quite fit together. There's missing components. There isn't a single solutions provider. So the biggest problem people have right now when they think about hopping full-on into um, hemp sector is there's this myth that you can just go to one manufacturer and get everything, just the whole thing, just put on a table for you flawlessly. What actually happens is right now, people need to understand that this is actually kind of the tip of the spear and very novel, as in no one knows what they're really doing. Um, this is an honest thing that people don't really talk about very often. When you get to these large projects that are talking about six tons a day of biomass coming in, you suddenly have a completely custom process train from the beginning to the end. I'm talking about all the way from the very beginning loading dock, people don't go granular all the way to, of course, the end of the actual process to the final vessels that are, of course, getting filled. Each one of those steps is gonna have different pieces in it. The other part that's making it really hard to scale is fire code. <laughs> um, there's some very static uh, codes in international building code, international fire code. And those codes have pretty understood methods for storing extremely large amounts of hazardous material, such as ethanol, hexane, methanol, Pentane, primary we're focusing on mainly ethanol in this case, um, which ethanol is involved in each phase of the process as well. Solvents, from them back bill. Solvents are involved in every phase of the process. Of course, both the chemists would probably be able to speak more to that. When it comes to storing those though, what we can talk about is how it applies to code. So when you have a building and you'd like to do six tons a day, 
which is pick an arbitrary number because we have multiple products going after that number. <laughs> you now have a minimum of 20,000 gallons of ethanol most of the time being stored on this site somehow. Most people don't realize that you're just turning a facility into a fuel depot. You now have a huge amount of codes. You can't have all that be inside the facility without the facility being an amazing, uh, basically explosion-proof bunker. This bunker, of course, everything within it is going to cost you more. The entire thing's fire code rated walls, floors, ceilings, every single electrical outlet. Everything costs thousands percent more money because it has to be explosion-proof in nature. So the problem we keep seeing, and this is the, the, the far view misconception, is people say, great, we're an, we're an apple producer, we're a berry producer, we have processing facilities, we're getting into hemp, we know exactly what we're doing, we're just gonna go to this manufacturer and buy all this great stuff. The minute they get it, suddenly problems start showing up very quickly. In fact, before they even get it. How do you connect all these pieces? How do they actually work together? How do you store all, of course, the required materials to service them? How do you get the utilities toward them? And suddenly people realize that they are doing something that no one else is doing. There is no six ton a day operational facilities yet. There will be. Most I've ever seen is two tons right now. And that's considered huge, which is really not that big compared to what big pharma is doing. So I guess the biggest divide between the, con the concept and the reality is that people think they can just go straight from where they are to this perfectly operational facility, and we, well, have, there's massive problems there. And, and then I know we talked about this other, but there's the other side of regulation, which is FDA, food, compliance, GMP, ISO 9001, which I, you had a whole spiel about. I don't know if you want to mention that. But. Yeah, actually, that's actually pretty important, too. Sorry, I didn't want to go, uh, just, <laughs> I just want to keep blathering for like five minutes straight, because it seems uh, monotonous. All right, so on the other side is com of the just compliance with international fire code, international building code, you also, of course, have compliance with the entities that are going to be certifying your facility to actually sell those products. So at a minimum, you're going in for a GMP or more than likely CGMP, which is current good manufacturing process uh, certification. Uh, you're also going to be going for ISO 9001. Then a lot of people are saying, hey, we really want to ship off to the European Union, which of course sounds great. Right now they're opening up the European Union for import. So of course you're going to want to get EU GMP which is actually a completely separate entity from Europe that has to come and certify your facility to uh, international building code. Very different. And on the very far end is the actual FISMA compliance, which if at the FDA finally, of course, gets involved, which they will very soon, um, your facility will also be, have to become FISMA compliant. So we've got these facilities that are not just incredibly complex from just the functionality part, which again, no one has perfectly figured out, which is why you need people like these gentlemen uh, to come in and figure out how the process itself is going to produce a particular product. You also then need a team of engineers to actually connect all these pieces together to make them actually function. So when it comes to actually having functional processing facilities, and everyone thinks it's just you snap your fingers and you've got hemp grown over here, it goes into some magical thing, and then on the end of it, we have these lovely five-gallon stainless steel vessels full of distillate. And it's all figured out. No, it's completely not. <laughs> it's also hard to ramp because of those facilities turn into basically fortified bunkers. And I know everyone's like, well, what about CO2, which is what you asked. Um, CO2 is fantastic. CO2 happens to also be double the cost of the equipment from the capital investment perspective. However, CO2 becomes cheaper past about a ton a day. So if you look at like the operational expenditure chart versus the CapEx chart, you see CO2 will start to pull away on operational expenditures from ethanol uh, right around a ton a day, and then it's gonna keep going down, which is great. So as you're buying more bulk CO2, you're actually spending less. You also need food-grade ethanol. Uh, <laughs> so you can't just use just standard ethanol. You have to have a specialized type of ethanol that costs you even more, unless you have a rail spar at your facility, getting you know, 40,000, 50,000 gallons of food-grade ethanol is not exactly easy. Anyways, I think it's probably enough for going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> So it comes to, uh, to Willy Wonka. So if you do the Willy Wonka, oompa, loompa, loompa dee day. So when you looked at his, everything was really clean, especially in the Gene Wilder ones. The Gene Wilder one I was much more fond of than, than the second one. And, but he had open chocolate, as I remember. And, uh, and then those damn squirrels. Um, those squirrels, yeah. And so when you're, when you're looking at those things, it's also a matter of, where do you find the people that are going to work in a CBD factory rather than you know, making 
aspirin or making um, acetaminophen or making you know, everlasting gobstoppers because now you have to find the engineers that are willing to move into something that is more risky. And, and, and the number of engineering facility, engineering resources like Dan's, there's probably, I'm gonna say there's like four in the US. But other than that, you only have four versus if you're building a factory for something else, for caramels, you have probably, I don't know how many. Quite a few more. Quite a few more. And so now you, that's what you have, is now you have you know, a certain amount of resources that are moving towards this and a certain amount of people that know how to do CO2 at that, at that range. You might have, um, you know, for example, hops would be able to be doing that. Um, some of the other things that are, that are used to using you know, the Saturn III rocket-sized vessels and that's what you have to drive towards. So how do you make that thing and how do you have them all connect? And so that's, that's the second challenge you have is that it's the industry and the number of resources you have. Dams is, is great. You can make 3D models and see where things connect, but it's cross-training, it's finding the people that know what this, what this does even to do an emulsification and what are you trying to make? So that's your other challenge. Actually, I wanna follow up on that a little bit. That's the piece I think that's, a, yeah, I think you, you're hitting on it quite well is people don't understand what kind of an army it actually takes. Because there are no, there's no mega company right now in the hemp or cannabis space. And I know everyone's gonna be like, oh my God, no, have you ever looked at the stock exchange and yeah, no. <laughs> they don't actually have all the pieces in place yet. They're just raising the money and they're doing a really good job of marketing. But all those little bits and pieces are not yet connected. You don't have a group that has a full complete team. And when you get on a project, it suddenly becomes apparent you need process train engineers, you need people like John, you need designers, you need modelers, you actually need, of course, a bunch of actual technicians to actually operate the process. You need a contractor to actually understand what they're doing, understand process piping, understand vapor lock, and actually know how to build systems. All those pieces have to all be flawlessly coordinated to actually make a thing even just work. Not just, you know, um, that's the thing people think, you know, it's going to just function the first time. It never functions the first time, even if it does have that team. So that's the other problem is the, I, the expectation versus the reality right now are um, unfortunately kind of light years apart in the hemp space, which is also why you see so few large-scale extractors currently making product at scale because it's an unbelievably hard and they're basically inventing things. So there's an opportunity for smaller manufacturers. There's an opportunity for those, you know, the one ton type of thing versus the 15,000 ton type of thing. There's some questions up here. Did mm -hmm. you have, Adam? Is the market moving toward nanotechnology more now? I'm sorry, say it again. Oh, is the market moving towards nanotechnology? They're moving more to, I'll say nanotechnology, but I'd be more happy with microtechnology. And so that they are moving towards that for some of the products that would be available, but that doesn't fit a tincture, and it doesn't fit a, you know, some of the other uh, the lotions and such, so it, it's not an entirely encompassing one, but it, it is moving in that direction. It's just not the entire industry won't move there. Are there any other questions on that? So as far as the, um, the finished product is concerned, um, what process is better? Um, you know what I mean? Um, as I far do as know what you purity, mean. you know, toxins and terpenes and all. So I have a John McKay version of that. And that is BEST. So B stands for botanical integrity making sure that whatever formulation you have, it's formulation-centric. What you're trying to make and the ingredients that you have allow you to get to that. So that's your best technology for what you're trying to make as far as a final formulation. So the second part is E is for extraction, efficiency, efficacy, economics. Uh, S is for safety and T is for testing with, with modern technology. So I'll do a quick analogy. It involves eggs. And for those that have already heard the egg one, you can start to recite it with me. And so what you have is you have a small uh, pan with a, a thin edge, and you can make fried eggs with that. Or you can make an omelet, or you can make scrambled eggs if you're careful. But you can't make poached eggs. 
and you can't make boiled eggs. You need a different pan. So the best technology for eggs depends on what you're trying to make. And so the, the quick answer is start with what you're trying. If it's a tincture, make sure you're making things that are applicable to a broad spectrum. If it's a vape pen that has a specific amount of terpenes or, or other things with a pure CBD, then you'd want something that has a different technology that might be more selective. So each one of those, the quick answer is start with what you're ending with, and that's your beginning. And it's not a, it's not a roundabout question. It, that, that's the answer, I think. Well, yeah, it's really start, you know, seeing what your end goal is in mind, what you want to reverse yeah. engineer that backwards. Did, did, does that ring true with anyone else, or does other people have their choices? Or okay. my, I would agree completely. Of you know, depending on really, like you know, if you just want CBD isolate to throw into your cookies or your you know tincture or whatever, then you don't need to be so concerned with the entire processing and you know where are the terpenes, where are the minor cannabinoids, where are the fatty acids that occur in the plant, where are all those things because that's not what you're trying to sell. But if your product wants the broad spectrum or, you know, and you care about the terpenes, then you should start thinking about which processes ensure that they're there. And then the testing portion at the end is very important because anybody can tell you that, you know, this oil has all these things. But I would say caution, you never, never believe it until if they're not willing to show you a COA that answers all your questions as far as terpenes, residual solvents, cannabinoids, if they don't want to give you that, then you should, probably shouldn't be buying from them because that is the kind of, that's the proof. That's the scientific evidence. If any, yeah, so that's my And it's close to the, the COA, the lab results be, she is close to what they're providing you versus someone that they got it from over here to over here to over here to over here to over here. There's always something suspicious about that. Or not suspicious, I would just, I would be suspicious. So I have a question up here and then there's a woman in the back, Adam. Uh, this is for Dan. Um, I can't speak uh, about the uh, ethanol extraction uh, technology. Uh, I work in the hop industry, and so we have you know, CO2 extraction plants that can extract up to like 15 million pounds of a biomass a year. You know, so you know, um, if, I don't believe you, it's necessary to build your own CO2 plant to extract hops. There's a lot of excess uh, extraction capacity out there for large volumes, like hundreds of thousands of pounds even millions of pounds, so. Well, it does exist for the hops process, but it, I'm saying it's not perfectly calib calibrated yet for the hemp industry. But yeah, CO2 definitely does exist. And we have clients who buy you know, Chinese pressure vessels for 500 liters a pop that are completely done. Technology's out there for that, but it hasn't fully been calibrated for the entire process change, what I'm saying. Remember, we're talking about crude extract, isolation phase, distillation phase. So if you're talking about the whole all the way through with hops. It's not quite the same as like, you know. Well, fair enough, but I don't believe you need to be vertically integrated to make, you know, oh, any yeah. of these products. Um, yeah. And you know, it's like, like brewing beer, you know, Budweiser doesn't make their own glass bottles or cans and, you know, or grow their own, well, they grow some of their malt, but you know. Well, but someone else is going to do that at some point, so at scale you're gonna have certain problems is all. Yeah. And I think there's a unique problem that hops in no other industry encounters Adam. is that as soon as you extract the hemp plant, it has THC levels above 0.3%, which is now a federally controlled marijuana product that you cannot transport across state lines. You cannot sell it to a different company. So I think that's part of the unique issue is what people do now is they have to do everything in-house because they can't get rid of that. You can't extract all the oil. It fundamentally has roughly 1% to 3% THC, and you can't take it in a truck across the street that's transporting a... DEA controlled class one narcotic. So you have to do all the processing in your facility to get that THC removed at that point. And even then it's questionable with the laws, like they're essentially letting people do it because they know that this is what's happening. But as soon as you extract it, it's a illegal substance. And so that's why everyone's looking for the in-house solution because you can't sell it, you can't even move it. And that's, no, and you, you can go on the internet and buy distillate right now with THC levels above that, but I would, that's very, like, that's illegal, is what I would say. So, federal so there's, a, there's a difference between a law and, a, and uh, what the government's allowing. So I, I know that some people out here drive on the highway, and I would be suspicious if you told me that you were always driving at the speed limit. How many of you drive at the speed limit? 
So there is a speed limit, and that's the law. But, but as far as what people, what the police do, we all know that it's, you know, 55 plus 9, and if you go 7, you're okay. So you put your register at 55 plus 7. I don't know what the, I, I was told there'd be no math. And so that's, you know, so you do have that. And then the woman in the back before I start droning on. Okay, sorry. Uh, so my question has to do with quality and C of A's. Uh, you kind of touched briefly about using liquid chromatography for quantitative analysis. Could you also effectively um, use gas chromatography? So the trouble, you can. Okay. And most states do. And that's a very bad thing. But, that, but, they do, but that's how they started Why? their state. So what happens is they take CBD or they take THCA and they take THC and they use a gas chromatograph and a gas chromatograph will convert the acid directly into the neutral and then it will, and then it will use that as its quantitation. Well, that doesn't give you a direct correlation between what the plant actually makes and what they're testing. Um, so, so gas chromatography isn't my first choice. Um, liquid chromatography, after 29 years at Waters Corporation, would be my first choice, um, just because that's what I was trained to do. And so I would use that, and my, my preferred choice is supercritical fluid chromatography. That's, that's my preferred choice, because then I'm using CO2, and, I'm, and I've got far more um, capability of separation. I can separate chirals, I can separate a lot of things easier, but I can also do um, purification. So therefore, I can eliminate all the pesticides. I can eliminate THC just by taking it out on, on preparatory supercritical fluid chromatography. And to throw in there too, it's, it's usually not just one COA. So right, you have your potency COA, and I agree that GC wouldn't be good because yeah, you have to volatilize it. It's going to decarboxylate instantly, so you're not getting a realistic answer there. But you do want a residual solvent analysis, as we talked about. People yes. that are using hexanes, heptane, um, you know, ethanol. So you want to make sure your product isn't just saturated with residual solvents. So then that should be done with the GEC. Um, people are getting more and more concerned about heavy metals in the hemp flower, hemp stock, and then in the final product. And that you need like an ICPMS. So like, it's really expensive to do all of these tests, and a lot of people don't want to pay for all those tests. And so again, I think from a COA standpoint, if, if you ask for those sorts of things and they're saying, no, we don't, we're not gonna give that to you, I mean, you're, why, why would you wanna put something in your body that they're not even willing to test it for heavy metals or pesticides? So, mind you And I got a question for you guys on that actually. So have you found any research, anything coming up that can help make it more cost efficient for these COAs? My thought process is no. Like, there's only a couple. There's Waters. There's um, Perk and Elmer. There's Shimadzu. Uh, there's Agilent. There's a couple big companies, and they make these analytical instruments. And you can buy one used for thirty grand. I mean, a brand new one, anywhere from fifty to a hundred grand. Like, the instruments are expensive. You have to pay a chemist to do the testing. You have to have GMP sort of certifications which is expensive to be in a facility that does that. You have to buy a standard. So to get real validated, trustworthy COAs on all of these different categories, it's just an expensive thing to do. And so that's why a lot of people don't want to do it. But again, would you want to put a product that they're not even willing to spend in, you know, it's, you know, I don't know. If so. I was doing in-house, I would buy some lower um, precision for potency. I'd buy something that just allows me to get the major cannabinoids I would do. Um, there's there's different uh, GC NMRs out there that allow you to get the terpenes. There's different NMR itself that allows you to get some of those in-house, but it, you can't use it for a COA anyhow. You still got to go out to a certified laboratory, no matter what state you're in, that has ISO 17025, um, so that they have validated methods. They know how it's done. So those are the things that you can't get around. And and ICPMS have a nice day. You know, just you know, it's just oh, it's 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 it's, well, it's a <laughs> she seems to have taken offense to this. <laughs> but if you if it, but it is it's a very difficult thing. So it, the plant is it sucks up metal. That's what it's used for. It was used at Chernobyl. It was used to suck up metal. It's what it does. And so then we're really surprised that it's got metal in it. So if you prove a fertilizer and it's got metal in it, guess what it's doing? It's going oh look food which it, the plant doesn't actually make a sound, so in case any of you are just at night wanting to hear it. So that was But if you story. put your ear up to it very closely. Very closely. 
And you wait. And you wait. And you keep on waiting. And you keep on waiting. You might just hear the sound of the ocean. You might hear, yes. <laughs> this, this woman had a... Yeah, the woman in gray had her hand up for a while. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. You've got to wait for Adam. <laughs> so if you're using CBD for potential health benefits and then you want to vape it to increase the bioavailability, what does the oil like sesame seed oil or coconut oil do to your lungs? So the question is, what does the coconut oil or any of the other surfactants do to your lungs? I'm guessing it pyrolyzes and makes other, you know, cancer-causing drugs, molecules. So it does, it's the same thing with cigarettes. I mean, the harder you smoke on a cigarette. If you have a vape pen, so I don't actually use, I actually don't use um, the cannabis besides the CBD. So I started using CBD. But I haven't used the other ones. But what can happen is that people are used to, in the old days, of taking a joint... And you don't do that with a vape. <laughs> if you do that with a vape, it's a quick way to start coughing your brains out because now you're taking something that's very concentrated. It's got, your, your joint did not have saffron oil. It did not have coconut oil. It didn't have those things. And so what it does is it heats up the vape pen so that now you pyrolyze even more things. You've now made yourself a GC, gas chromatograph, and taking in all those you know, pyrroles, compounds. So you don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't know how to teach people how to, how to vape. And I think it's a general problem that the vaping industry, with or without CBD, is like there are all these oils and pretty much anything you light on fire at those high temperatures <laughs> and pyrolyze and then inhale is bad for you. Like you don't throw plastic in your camping fire and then sit there and breathe it in. People do, but you're not supposed to, right? So you're lighting things on fire. They degrade into toxic chemicals fundamentally in the process. So there's really not a good way to get around that. It's just a risk people, I guess, have, are okay with, right? You know, we know cigarettes are bad for us. Lots of people still smoke them. And we know lighting things on fire and inhaling them is not really good for us. But, and so I think what there's, there's now new studies coming out about, I think it's called popcorn lung is what they're calling it, with uh, yeah, vaporizing with polyethylene glycol, I think it is. Um, so look up popcorn lung. I think that's a good description of what's happening with a lot of vape. And I don't think it's unique to one carrier oil. I think it's probably going to be a result of pretty much anything you're vaping. So. Is there another question? There's a man back there. So we all talk about the purity and uh, CBD and its full spectrum. What about the oxidative degradation during the processing or uh, like quinone formation and all that. Uh, we know that quinones are kind of anti-cancer being. So what about that we, that co consumers don't know? I, I actually think there's some evidence for the quinone formation. If you look at, if you ever go buy an MCT oil that's like pure clear with CBD in it, I think it's common that it'll start turning pink and people get really worried that like bad things are happening. I think it's slow quinone oxidation that's happening. And so it doesn't happen super quick with CBD to like it's pretty, it's shelf life stability is pretty reasonable at temperatures, but I think small, like that's definitely happening. And again, there's no regulation and really not a lot of knowledge um, around that. So, so the more you purify it and the more you take out the natural antioxidants that the plant has, you now have a plant with no antioxidants. And you know what it's going to do? It's Oxide. going to oxidize. <laughs> so, you know, if you, so in the pharmaceutical industry that happens. So typically they're adding either a little bit of a vitamin E or some sort of isotoposynthetic vitamin E or vitamin A as, an, as a natural antioxidant. So as we purify it more, and then we're shocked that it, that it oxidizes. And, that, and that is what, that's part of what's happening. Another question? Sir, did you have a question? Maybe. What time are we supposed to end? Well, we can basically end at any time at this oh. point. Oh, we can basically end at any time. Okay, so before the, uh, round, four, round 4.30, we'll just take a little break for food. Yeah. yeah. On the oxidation, actually, of THC, you get CBN, which is a useful cannabinoid. So not yeah, naturally biosynthesized. It's actually a degradation product. Through degradation. And there should be a C... There is a known CBDN, or whatever you want to call it, but it's an oxidized, non-cyclized form of CBD. So, Real quick... Uh, in trying to control the quality control from 
the farm to the bottle itself, uh, do you see that there's going to be more co-ops that are going to be formed because of the equipment that's necessary? I'm, I'm an equipment manufacturer that makes uh, mills and seed separation equipment. And what we're seeing a lot of is the, the people that are in the industry have a crop and then they say, well, now, now I don't know what to do with the rest of the year because my crop's done. But I have a neighbor that has a crop and I have another neighbor that has a crop. But in order to have good quality control on the product that you're producing as, as a plant, if you will, um, do you see that there's going to be some kind of collaboration of of quality control for those different crops being processed in one plant? So what you're talking about actually, um, about a year ago, we first started hearing about this concept in Colorado. There's a couple groups trying to establish that. Uh, it's actually a pretty normal process where the actual people who own the extraction, the primary extraction facility were in fact, um, they had already gotten the seeds, the genetics. They were then of course providing the genetics to the farmers. They were uh, then brokering a established fixed price uh, upon completion uh, of the dried fresh product. And of course, after it was nitrogen packed and baled. Um, they were not successful because they were planning on producing enough product for the entire state of um, Colorado. It ended up being a much smaller pilot. Um, we keep hearing that every single state that has a large hemp um, group, that those are these groups forming. So it's only a matter of time before a couple of them will actually obviously be successful. If they're not already, at that point, it'll be a race to the bottom as far as the pricing for the farming portion. Um, extractors, of course, are going to be doing uh, reasonably well if they have that kind of business model, but that is the normal one that works very similar to some large, um, well, less liked companies currently that have similar kind of methods of delivery. And that's, of course, before we even get to, of course, the GMO, which I'm sure at some point we'll probably have a GMO cannabis um, or hemp, technically seed very soon. And to get very biotechnical, since that's the, the topic, I believe if you cut out a gene, it's not technically GMO. You're allowed to cut out a gene from a plant and it's you have not added a gene that is foreign to the, the plant, so you can cut it out and they don't consider it a GMO because you're just removing it. So I think that's going to be a huge push too of technically non-GMO, so are they patentable? I don't know. Um, but then just remove like a, the portion of the plant that makes THC. So there's a gene that codes for THC synthesis. And so I'm positive people are working on that. They've actually been doing that for years. So yeah, actually in Oregon, there's a group called uh, Phylos. Um, Mowgli leads that one. Nice guy, um, Nishan and Jess. Anyways, uh, they've been doing that for, yeah. And they keep, everyone keeps saying like, well, how's that non-GMO? And they're like, well, we take 2,000 you know, tissue um, samples, and then we of course are testing them and looking for epigenetic drift, or genetic drift, excuse me, and we're grabbing that genetic drift and then moving from there, which is of course, you know, the analogy is like, this is how you get from the, you know, 200 pound Rottweiler to the teacup poodle. So it, it, it's, a, it's a good analogy and I understand where they're going after it, but yeah, they have the similar thing where like, how is that not GMO? And they, it's exact same, we're, we're not technically doing anything, we're just allowing you know, basically evolution to unfloat, and except for we're doing two million samples at once. Uh, and I know there's, you can look at the, I think it's a nature paper as well, but they took some company, they took a mushroom and they used CRISPR, the genetic ed editing tool, cut out a specific gene, and then grew their mushrooms fine, and that was not a GMO. So there's legal precedent that cutting out a gene, even using biotechnology tools like CRISPR, is not technically genetically modified organism. You have to add a foreign gene, so. Mm -hmm. So when you uh, so there's a, a question here. Who defines hemp? So it'll be a, be law based. But if you but if you do take the uh, the gene like uh, Monsanto and they add a gene for pesticide control, then then that's your GMO. So back to your uh, original question. And so <laughs> it's in the dairy industry, and, and, and the, the 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 biggest issue you have are humans and money. And if we didn't have to worry about those all the time, then people, I think, would be a lot more cooperative, except that we are humans and we're, and we're in a, um, um, a society that uh, provides... Um, what, what am I actually... Capitalism. capitalism. Hey, there we go, capitalism. It was a multisyllabic <laughs> word. And so, capitalism, so I, I, I do a better job, and so someone believes they're going to do a better job, but I think what you're going to find is you're going to find the smaller states are going to get together as a collective because then you have this honking... Colorado, when you've got, 
you've got Kern County in, 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 in California. They are growing 12,000 acres of hemp, and they're in Kern County. I mean, they can do a couple crops. Wisconsin's going to have to get their crop in before the, the last snow and get it out before that first snow, which I believe is about two months <laughs> <laughs> on a good year. And so, that's, and so I think that it has to be a cooperative somewhere along that way. That was a terrible joke. I'm from Vermont, so it's like I can make fun of Wisconsin. No, you can't make fun of Wisconsin. <laughs>